Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. I'm Jay Anelli, and when I died in the meditation realm, I came back. I'm Andrew Weissel. I also died in the meditation realm and was resurrected later. Uh, I don't have time for this cold open. I'm actually trying to finish the Art of Magic the Gathering Dominaria. It is the last thing that I need to finish to do the 100% Vorthos run. I actually like pretty much wasted my entire savings account just buying old Duelist magazines, old games, just so that I could 100% everything. Played through Chandelar, played through Battle Mage, played through every single duels game. We've got everything, and I just need to finish this book before the end of the cast, and I will be 100% Vorthos run. Nice, nice. Where are you keeping all of that stuff? Uh, the bookshelf is getting pretty packed. I think this is like a Target bookshelf, and it's honestly like, uh, the the actual shelves are getting a little bendy under the weight, but we'll see. <laughs> it's going to be worth it just to have it all up there, and it'll be a nice archived library of everything that I've completed. So, I believe in you, Carrie's bookshelf. <laughs> so let's move on to news. This last week, we found out that there is going to be a book next April called Rise of the Gatewatch. It's written by Jenna Helland, who you've probably heard us talk about here before, but she runs the R&D world building team, and she's been in charge of creative there for a long time now, I think since Theros. It comes out in April 2019, but what's interesting is it's not an art book. It's not one of the Viz art books. It is a history of the Gatewatch and all the people important to the Gatewatch. We don't know how deep it's going to go. But considering it's 256 pages, I think it's going to go pretty deep. Yeah, that's intimidating. I was originally comparing it to the promotional book they had done for Magic Origins that had each of the five characters' origin stories in it. You probably don't remember it. It was a very thin book. It just had a whole bunch of the art, the stories, pretty much copy and pasted from the website. Didn't that only come with like the SDCC promos that year? I picked up a copy away from the SDCC promos, so. <laughs> but this one being art book sized, or seemingly so, it could be an actual compilation of the stories along with art. It could be a lot of things. I'm just excited to see what exactly it ends up being. They did talk about that there would be lots of card art and marketing art and all kinds of art in there, so it sounds like it's an art book, but I don't know if it's supposed to be along the lines of the Viz art books. Or like more Planeswalker Guide type issue. Yeah, exactly. Which she also co-authored. I think our hope is that this is an onboarding tool. That if you are genuinely interested in diving pretty deep into the lore, this might be a good entry-level lore book that you can just sit down and flip through and figure out who's who and get the kind of information that We've been wanting wizards to put out in a form kind of like this for a while, so. It's 250-some-odd pages at a $20 price point makes it seem like it's not that. Yeah, the pricing for the size seems weird. We know it's not by Viz. I'm just interested to see who this is supposed to be serving, because I feel like the premier time for any kind of Gatewatch lore book for onboarding would have been two years ago. When we were diving from, like, around Shadows over Innistrad, around a Kaladesh block, when we could have gotten people on board to the characters, and they would have only had a year of reading to do, maybe. But now, at the end of the biggest arc, it's strangely placed. I think people are exposed enough to the story that they don't want to go out and get this thing to read more about the story that they've read over the past three years, when it's mostly not going to be exclusive content for $20. Based on the timing, I think it might be encapsulating a lot of the, at the very least, Magic Origins to the end of Ravnica plot as essentially the Phase 1 book as the story moves on past that with the new paradigm and the new set structure. Depending on how long they keep the Gatewatch around. Again, we don't actually know any of that future stuff, so it's difficult to say. Alright, so let's move on to listener questions. Today, we are only going to talk about one listener question because this was such a great question that it's going to take a while for us to answer. 
literal years. <laughs> Buckle up because you're going to be listening to this podcast until your next birthday. So the question is, hey folks, Carrie mentioned in this week's cast that Wizards of the Coast doesn't support the Vorthos community slash fandom. If they did, what would that look like to you ideally? And that's from Great Grass Links on Twitter. So the first thing we should start with is that we don't know the internal workings of Wizards of the Coast very well. Even Super Vorthos, like ourselves, we still did not know the details of, say, the franchise team or how that interacts until we actually reached out and asked for an interview and things had been happening for a year behind the scenes that we just didn't know about. So we should preface this with, we don't know necessarily what's going on behind the scenes for a lot of these decisions. And when we say Wizards of the Coast doesn't support the Vorthos community, that doesn't mean individual employees don't, or that they don't care, but that overall as a company, it does not invest in the story fans the same way that other comparable companies and properties do. Yeah, and I think that's the big sticking point is we're not looking for prize winnings. We're not looking to compete. Nobody really can compete except for me for this 100% run that I'm doing. (laughs) It's more of dedicating the resources. We see how many organized play pages go up pretty much every month or two dedicated to explaining events. And those are money events, so it makes sense that they would be going up. But it's a matter of the story side of the site just goes untouched for pretty much months and months on end. The most we get is updates to the little story ticker that's inside of there. They've made minor strides in getting you access to old stories, but as Jay will emphasize on later, the site's just one of the biggest sticking points and stuff that they could easily do or could maybe not so easily do, but invest time and money into retain and invest new fans, but they don't. And they haven't for the three or four years that I was active in the community and for the time that Jay and Andrew have been active in the community as well. Part of the issue are, like Carrie mentioned, that organized play, you get these full articles on the mothership every month or two. The Vorthos side of things doesn't really get that, despite having a lot more stuff going on right now. It's something that would be very useful in the future. The way the site is set up right now, it's nice that it features outside content creators. But when, say, let's take the Chandra comic, for instance, there were about three articles on it on outside sites. But if you didn't tune in to the mothership on the day those were featured, you wouldn't even know going to the mothership that a Chandra comic was coming out in three months. That's a big issue. Not only that, but they only featured one of those articles on the mothership, and all three of those articles had different information about that product. That's something that falls back on content creators to organize is pulling the relevant, unique information from each of those articles and combining it into stuff that we can deliver on Twitter, like Jay does with those articles. But that shouldn't be our job. That literally is relying on fans to organize and disseminate the information when you could easily have a product page up for a comic that you are licensing and have at least the majority of the information that was contained in each of those articles, even days after, so you're not affecting their click counts on their site or the audience that is going to that site. You could still have that information somewhere on the mothership, but right now you wouldn't know. It's just weird because if you're a Magic fan who's into that kind of thing, there isn't, I would say, support for the whole franchise side of things right now. So there's a lot of really cool Vorthos stuff coming out in the next few months. There is the Art and Concepts book. There is the Chandra comic. There is the D&D book for Ravnica. There's the Ravnica art book. And then there's this new Rise of the Gatewatch book. But... Unlike, say, the core magic product, you couldn't go to the mothership and find out really any of that was happening unless you happened to find an announcement article that was on the mothership. And even baffling 
silence on pretty major things that get announced. The product line for the re-released ebook novels that were pushed out on Amazon and I believe a few other outlets, those were pretty early on in Dominaria, and we didn't get the actual ticker that even said, like, direct you to the old magic novels until I think it was the second to last or last episode of Dominaria. And you could have had fans reading pre-Dominaria content, gotten their dollars in preparation, and then had them invested in the Dominaria story if you would have said any tweet, any word officially on the ebooks re-release coming out. And I think in addition to that, the Planeswalker poster and now Planeswalker art puzzle that we see is pretty major Vorthos pickup. I think a lot of people were attracted to it when it was first shown online. And then when it found out it was for sale, a couple people picked it up, including myself. Yeah, that's like a big Vorthos buy. And they could have easily put out even a single tweet saying that. But so far we have had no official recognition, despite it being a, I believe, Gen Con exclusive puzzle as well. Yeah, the there's a box that said Gen Con exclusive that I had no idea it was even at Gen Con. <laughs> and even if it was just poorly timed because it had the Sahili art on it that was from Mander 2018 that had not been released yet, they could have at least like said any word on it to just be like, hey, this is out. And it also has some new bonus art and get people buying that. But instead they have tweeted zero links, posted zero links on Facebook, never featured it on the mothership. It's just confusing. Like, how do they expect the people to buy these things that they have officially licensed if they're just not going to talk about them until a month or two after they're released? I don't know. And shout out to Hazard's Party Favors on Tumblr for having that puzzle and posting a picture of it because that's so far, so the only thing I've seen about that item anywhere on the internet. So I think the new paradigm overall was also, you know, these changes were made internally like eight months before we knew about them. And it's not like a card set. So I think there's a lot of confusion in the community and there's animosity that really could have been headed off if... That kind of thing was rolled out to us in advance. I'm seeing people who are still misunderstanding how the current system works. There isn't one person in charge of the story now. It's the franchise team coordinating with the R&D world building team who develops the story internally and externally, which we didn't learn till a, a Twitch stream like last month, about a year after this whole process had started. And then I think another issue, and this one's probably the easiest to solve, is when new episodes are publishing. Core 2019 missed two weeks over the summer that had a lot of people wondering on Wednesdays when they came in, you know, well, what happened? I think it would be pretty easy to just put in the publication date into the coming soon box for each episode so that when you tune in to see it, you can click on it and see, oh, wait, that was coming out next week. And that way we don't have a lot of confused people online, because that always happens whenever there's no story. Or just tweet about it. Just have the official account tweet. They tweet the new articles every day. If they're going to interrupt the story, they can just tweet that there's no episode today when they're doing all the other tweets. That's a simple thing that they can coordinate with the community team to better convey information about the part of the product that our community engages with. And you can still do it, even if it's a holiday like July 4th was this year. You can schedule tweets in advance. So no one might be in the office, but the fan community can still know not to tune in on their 4th of July to read a story they're excited for and then find nothing. Related to all this, can either of you tell me when the three-part story featuring Vivian Reed is going to start? Because I can't. Because they haven't announced it. It's going to be sometime before Ravnica. Yeah, we know it's before Ravnica, probably a week or two from now, but it's not clear exactly when. How are we supposed to prepare ourselves to read another edition of Magic Story if we don't know when it's going to start? So the scheduling issue is a very big concern for me, especially timing my articles for Cool Stuff, Inc. 
and I'm sure other Vorthos writers, because I plan out my content in advance. I plan the week or the article that comes out after a story concludes to have a summary article up so that it's timely for the people who weren't following along and want to get ready for the next story sooner. For this cast, preparing what we're actually going to say for the cast. If we need to fill an entire episode because we don't have a story to talk about, we need to know what to fill, and we need to know that in advance. Yeah, it's important for us as content creators, but it's also important for the community because if people don't know when to read your stories and when there's going to be new content, they don't know to go and read it. And if they don't know to go and read it, you're not going to get the clicks on the website that you're expecting. And then you're going to look at the story and say, oh, I guess nobody's reading the story, which they would if you would just tell them when it started. I think there were only two articles total, both Arcana, that reference the IDW Dak Faden comics existing, and one was exploring the promos, and then one was, I believe, the not even an announcement page. It was an announcement page for like the second volume that was coming out. So we know how that line ended up. I'm leaving the community, but I still wish Magic well in getting products out there that story fans enjoy. And especially for this, the comics are kind of a big risk because it's re-exploring a medium that they really haven't done in quite a while now and that their last one wasn't like an overwhelming success with. Just announce them. Just say things on the mothership. You guys know that people look on the mothership for content. Story fans are no different. Let's talk about the mothership again for a second. So we mentioned the story side getting updated. Let me talk about the research I did just today. I looked at two comparable properties to Magic in terms of depth of the lore, how long it's been running. So I looked at World of Warcraft, and I looked at Warhammer. Within seconds on the Warcraft website for World of Warcraft, I was reading one-paragraph summaries of every Warcraft game, expansion, and patch update for World of Warcraft over the last 25 years, just like Magic, because I think the first one came out around 1994. It was super easy if I was looking to get caught up on Warcraft's lore, I already have, like, suddenly a whole lot more things click into place for me, (laughs) because the context of all of these products were readily available for me. And then, in addition to that, they had listings for every lore resource out there, whether it be web fiction, short stories, comics. If the comic's out of print, they have PDFs that you can download. The novels that are out there. I spent maybe five minutes on the website, and I know exactly what I would need to do to get into Warcraft's lore. Looking at Warhammer, go to their, what they call the Black Library, and they have literally like 80 different Warhammer novels divided up into the storyline And they didn't have a where to start, but it was pretty clear there were story arcs you could pick from and jump into. The Magic website's been updated many times over the years, but it used to have pages, especially during the Weatherlight Saga or just after, that would give those short summaries of previous block stories, so the context of the current set would be there. Right now, all we've got is a listing of the most recent stories, so the widgets from all the stories since the widget has existed, then small links to the product pages to follow those earlier stories. But here's the thing. On the story page, it has those widgets, the last few short story sections. It has a link to the ebooks on Amazon, but it only has a link to the ebooks that are from this past, what was it, March? Yeah, the update with the republishing. So it doesn't even have links to the recent ebooks or what to look for, like Agents of Artifice, which is a big one as we're returning to Ravnica. All the Planeswalker novels, all of the Ravnica original novels, those were published alongside of Return to Ravnica. Yeah, every Planeswalker novel and Block novel that was out of cycle, including like Scars of Mirrodin and the original Mirrodin trilogy as ebooks, I think maybe one or two got picked up, the Time Spiral novel ebooks. It's just, there's plenty missing. I checked the link, and right now, the link on there is the Weatherlight Saga, the Ice Age Cycle, and the Time Spiral Cycle. Those are the ebooks it links you to. 
M19 through Battle for Zendikar are there, but the problem is the story does not start at Battle for Zendikar. The onboarding is Magic Origins. And so I went to see if I was a new player, or if I was a new reader, how many clicks I would have to take to get to Magic Origins or, or the prelude, Project Lightning Bug, which is a separate problem. It took me 33 clicks. 33 clicks, because it didn't have Magic Origins listed there. I had to keep clicking Read More until I got far enough back to get to Magic Origins, which is supposed to be the starting point for all of these stories. If I was someone new just starting out, I would look at this, say, well, this story's already in progress. Where do I even start? Look at the hundreds of short fiction stories on the website. Maybe not even know that Magic Origins is supposed to be the starting point. It is not an easy place to onboard, whereas the other sites I looked at were pretty easy to get on board with the story. And I think this happens in a lot of communities of people asking where to start, but it's particularly become a begrudging question on the magic subreddit where people like have joked about how many where do I start with the story threads there are because people it's daily genuinely do not know where to start with the story people like Jay have been like we have organized these stories and have like at least this page where you can go and try to read the stuff in chronological order but also we can't organize 200 odd magic story articles individually into specific things, it just becomes a huge burden of either the fans organize the content, or we literally don't get as many new people involved in the story community because of the general unfriendliness of the website to any kind of potential story fan. It's not clear what's available, where you start, the search feature is non-functional on the website. I will search for keywords that I know exist and it'll tell me nothing. It's also not clear, like, what is canonical? They don't want to flat out say that one of the novels are non-canonical, but something like Testamental that's been pretty thoroughly gutted in canon, you can just say, put a Legends marker on it, like the old Star Wars canon or something. Just say, this is a fun book to read, but it doesn't factor into anything going forward. But I also think that part of this, and this hits back on the communication point, is that people don't know where to say this. We are saying this because we have a podcast and we know that people listen to our podcast. There's like, I think, 12 of you, 13 last week. We're very lucky. <laughs> no, we've got plenty of you. But we are saying this because we're on a podcast and we have some kind of platform to say this. People who are genuinely frustrated with the site have added like wizard staff members and been like, hey, do you think you could update actual pages for the new Planeswalkers like Eminatau and Estrid? And the response is like, well... That's not my domain of the site. And they're like, whose domain is it? And they're like, they're not on Twitter. And I'm like, okay, well then how <laughs> are we expected to get any kind of, like, we don't want to barrage these people with feedback, but people who are genuinely trying to help the community and bring more people into the community, especially more new people who might not have as easy access to other community members or like mega resources that everybody knows internally. That is a huge stepping point, is just visiting the Magic website and being able to be like, this is where I need to start, and this is my reference point for a lot of things. And we have no way to help that reference point get any better, because it's simply nobody that we can ever talk to or communicate with clearly. The problem is, in the most recent couple rounds of redesigns, the story sections were... I would say they were not a priority. They were decimated. It wasn't a malicious act on anyone's part, but as they were redesigning, creating the content for the new pages obviously wasn't a priority. So you can get small blurbs on what the planes are and who the planeswalkers are, but like if you want to know about the overall story and where to start, there's actually less information on the Magic website now than probably there has ever been in the past. Because like I mentioned, it used to have full like synopsis for novels and everything available there for readers. So, you know, I have written a resource for getting people onboarded to the story. What I would ideally like is for someone who is more of a professional writer than I am to be able to do something similar for the Vorthos community so that when we get those Reddit posts on 
where do I start with the story? We can simply point them at the mothership rather than at, oh, I don't know, there's probably like a dozen different blogs or places, including my own, that people get linked to at this point. Or they get told to visit the wiki, but there's no context on the wiki, so... That's dangerous. If a new Vorthos comes to you and says, where do I start? And you just say, go to the wiki. They'll end up on like Loot Niptil's page and think that he's important. <laughs> well, they could also end up on like Gideon's page and be bombarded with Gideon's retconned origin story before getting to the alternate origin or whatever it's listed as on there. And that's not the fault of anybody who's an admin there for like not cleaning that stuff up because you can only dedicate so much time to the site it is a community effort people need to realize that these are community members and they may have biases when they are entering information <laughs> on there. yeah that's definitely true well and it comes back to the point of it's not the community's job to maintain a wiki to make sure magic story is all correct that's Wizard's job to make sure their IP is understood and available and accessible. Don't even get me started on Wizard's employees using the wiki as a reference. Andrew, do you want to dive into the advertising marketing section? We actually kind of mostly talked about this already. We gotta get the information out that things are existing in there. But something actionable that we don't have to recommend. Kind of a tangential to the Vorthos community parallel to our interests is that Wizards of the Coast announced last week that they have partnered with the Martin Agency to do some kind of marketing, branding initiative thing in the future. The Martin Agency is an ad company who's done all kinds of big work. I'll link to an announcement article about it, but they've done a ton of work, especially in this sector of the industry with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Game of Thrones, Star Wars, and Harry Potter. I took a look at their website and checked out some of the marketing campaigns they've done. They've done a whole bunch of stuff with Geico, who, regardless of how you feel about their insurance, has consistently, <laughs> for over a decade, put out memorable ad campaigns. So this looks like a big deal for Magic, partnering with a prominent marketing agency to put a lot of word about Magic out there. A big part of it is probably going to be Arena, because we've heard some rumblings that that's going to be launching towards the end of this year. If this means franchising and branding, that will cross over into a lot of the Vorthos concerns that we have especially getting to know our main characters like Jason Gideon and Chandra, getting information about products like the Chandra comic or the art books or the fact that Magic Story exists and can be found on the mothership. All of that stuff could potentially be wrapped up in this. I am hopeful that this big marketing thing that Wizards is going to start isn't just to get the card game and arena and stuff out there, but that they actually try and build on a flavorful foundation their branding as well, because that's important to the Forthos community, that magic is more than just a card game, that it is characters, that it is worlds, that it is myths and legends and adventures. Agreed. Part of that is, going back to what we talked about earlier, if they're drawn in by this branding and marketing or arena and want to learn more, and what they're presented with is what's currently available, most people are not going to do the work of finding out how to start. They're going to get frustrated and they're going to be done. And if anybody knows how to promote Magic's Vorthos offerings, it's definitely Carrie who tweeted about the Dominaria art book before the Wizards account decided that they would do it too. Sorry, I was distracted. I'm reading the Yavamaya Coast section of the um, Art of Magic the Gathering Dominaria. I have like, <laughs> I actually have like only 30 pages left, so we'll see how this goes. It's a matter of they don't tweet about the stuff, but also with regards to non-story content that relates to Vorthos offerings. Magic struggles as a fandom. Let's be clear about that. We don't have a plethora of active fan artists. We don't have many, many active fan fiction writers at all. And those are 
cornerstones of larger fandoms and cornerstones of a lot of other gaming fandoms as well. You go to the Twitters of games like World of Warcraft, where they have been retweeting fan art and cosplay within the past week, and they have just launched like their biggest expansion yet. And it's amazing that they are taking the time out of that big promotional effort to promote fan artists and cosplayers who are also doing derivative work that relates to this newest expansion. Then you have Overwatch that is constantly retweeting fan artists and cosplay that people have done of the Overwatch characters, and even things like League of Legends has an ongoing hashtag for just fan artists to submit their fan art and kind of be recognized by the League of Legends Twitter account so that the Twitter account can retweet it. We got some of that paid from Dominaria, where they were paying fan artists to do comics that were relating to the story, but for the most part, we don't get that kind of support for cosplay and fan artists within the community. It's more difficult to recognize fanfiction writers for legal reasons relating to how the story is written, but it's easy to just give an RT to somebody who has taken the time to create work that relates to your IP. And to blast through this real quick, there is a kind of long-standing stigma against selling any kind of stuff relating to magic IP that is derivative work, so any kind of fan art that relates to it, just selling prints of your cosplay photos or stuff like that. And that may have changed recently, but when I was introduced to the community, I knew that fan artists were not allowed to sell prints and that cosplayers weren't allowed to sell prints because Wizards was cracking down on that. And it just contrasts so strongly with Overwatch and every other community that I've dabbled in within the past few weeks, just seeing the support for fan artists and fan content creators like that. Well, and then you look at the fan art content policy, whatever, that legal thing. That they felt the need to tweet out despite updating on the website. There just seems to be so many unnecessary restrictions and kind of like, hey, remember, we have the rights to everything. And it's like, okay, that's not something normal companies kind of shout out to their fans when they are expecting the fans to create more content that was at the peak of Dominaria. And they're like, we know people are going to be excited for Dominaria. Let us remind you that we own your fan art because you drew our characters. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, like people understand that's how copyright works. People also just want to share the art, and that is discouraging artists from sharing their artwork. Unlike other franchises, yes, Magic really does a great job of discouraging fan works that would hype up the community, and that's why we don't have as many fan artists as we should. Right, and it's not like that policy is bad or wrong. Everyone has that policy. That's going to be part of the legal team's jobs at any company. Fans understand that. There's a PR side and an optic side and a building a relationship with your fan side where that just comes off so condescendingly demotivating. It feels like there is a PR side and none of those two other sides. It feels like they gave the reins of community engagement over to the legal team, which is no fun. It doesn't feel like there's a positive and fun and engaging relationship between Wizards of the Coast and the Magic Vorthos community. Let's talk about actionable items here. We've talked a lot about what the problems are, but what are our solutions to fix it? That was the premise of the question, but we kind of had to dissect the problem into what we thought was going on. The things we would like to see. We would like a central place where the franchised products are featured and not just the card product. I'd like to be able to go to the Wizards of the Coast Mothership and know what art books and what other cool Vorthos stuff is coming out or what other products are coming out that are neat and would interest me in addition to the card game. I don't want to have to go to three or four different websites to figure out when the art book's coming out, when this Rise of the Gatewatch book is coming out, when the comic books are coming out. I'd like to just go to the magic site and do it. For example, you can go to the Mothership, find a catalog of all the card expansions broken up by theme and then subcategorized chronologically, 
and it has a nice little part where you can go look at the upcoming products and they all have their own little informational widgets. Do something like that for the Vorthos products. Have a page that lists all your published novels and comics. Have a page of the exciting new stuff that's coming out for Vorthos fans. And it doesn't have to be as fancy as the product page for the card game. The card game page isn't fancy. It's very simple. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. It has kind of streamlined over the last few years. The next piece is just tell us when the story is coming out rather than having it be guesswork for the community. Holidays, we generally understand. If, If there's no one at Wizards of the Coast, the story isn't publishing. But that's the kind of thing that could be put up in advance by simply saying, you know, there's no story on July 4th, or putting out the schedule and making sure July 4th wasn't included. And I'm just using July 4th as an easy example because it was over the summer. That kind of engagement goes a long way because when you have people, whether or not they should know that July 4th is not going to be a day for the story, you're going to have dozens, if not hundreds of people tuning in for it. And every time they tune in and don't find it, their interest wavers a little bit. One of the good things that the newest iteration of the website has done was include that story widget for whatever the current story is. It's on Daily MTG, and you can always click through all the episodes there. Even just put the publication dates for the stories in the widget so that we can see when the next story is going to come out, so people can prepare themselves for when the next story is going to come out. And then announce when the new stories are going to start. Because, like I said, we still don't know when this Vivian Reed thing is going to happen. The next piece is put something in there that can onboard someone new and is interested in the lore. World of Warcraft has a really great widget where it's just a paragraph on every game and expansion, like I mentioned earlier. The website used to have things like this, especially back in the days when the story was really only in the novels. There would be regularly two-paragraph summaries of each novel to get people caught up with the current story. Finally, just that onboarding. Explain to people where to start. Right now, if I go to the story site, there is not a whole lot to tell me which story is a good starting point, and the fact that Magic Origins is so hard to get to, again, 33 clicks to get to Magic Origins from the story page, you know, most people aren't going to be finding that. So let's move on to Chronicle of Bolas, the unwritten now. This is the final story of Chronicle of Bolas. I mean, honestly, I did not like the frame story at first, but it really drew me in these last couple episodes, and I've enjoyed this story a great deal. So let's dive into it. At the beginning, we return with Naiva attempting to slit Baisha's throat, but Yasova ends up stopping her, and just one comment there is, last time I talked about Chekhov's sexy monk, but... (laughs) I think it was better this way that Tai Jin, the random outsider hot guy, didn't have to jump in and save her. This was all handled in the family. For what it's worth, by the end of the story, we're pretty sure that gun's going off sometime in the near future. <laughs> Yasova was in the Hedron, but was not receiving visions. So Naiva has to go back in, and hopefully their plan is to find out what the spirit dragon is trying to tell them so that they can use it to defend themselves against Bolas, who's lurking outside. Ugin's memories reveal that it was Bolas who attacked first, and that he ended up killing Ugin. So we saw that last time. What we didn't know is that Ugin intended to be killed. He tried to escape Bolas at first, but he realized even if he did escape, Bolas would never stop hunting him. So he allows himself to die in the meditation realm, Thinking back to Teju Ki's line to him about all things end, but that isn't the same as dying. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. It was weird because Bolas was chasing Ugin, and he had Phage's decaying touch, and Ugin was rapidly decaying as they were planeswalking across these planes in the battle. <laughs> Carrie's referencing the Bolas Lashrak battle. Honestly, it's a pretty cool parallel if it was intentional. If it wasn't intentional, guess what? It's still cool. <laughs> there was also a very cool shout out because they mentioned them going through a couple planes such as Zendikar and Ravnica, but also Kefali, which was tangentially related to Ugin later because there's a museum 
there that has a whole bunch of interplanar artifacts, one of which is the Dragon Scroll that contains the Ghostfire magic spell, which Chandra finds and opens the Eye of Ugin. It's very nice. There's a lot of really good stuff like that in this battle. Ugin is cast down, and his death creates that tidal wave that blows Bolas right out of the Meditation Realm. The place is barren and empty, and it seems a little bit like my theory on the Meditation Realm having to reconstitute itself was at least a little bit right, because it does reconstitute itself slowly. Ugin is kind of dead there, but his spirit lingers, and so he still has some thought. The water slowly refills in the Meditation Realm, and Ugin's consciousness uses that water and the essence of the realm to essentially rebuild himself. And he has this question, is I'm, am I flesh and bone or spirit and magic? Doesn't matter. And so this is really the point where I think Ugin becomes the spirit dragon properly, because he's also becomes concerned with protecting the planes from someone like his brother. It is a different story than what we had kind of come to understand Ugin's colorlessness as a result of, and that was him transcending the five colors of magic and becoming colorless. I like this one more, personally. I can't even remember where the original one came from, and I'm pretty sure it was like either a blog answer or something along the lines of a recap or Planeswalker Guide article, but this is much cooler for a spirit dragon. Yeah, and that explanation is very flavor-neutral and intentionally vague, and that all is code word for it doesn't mean anything. That Ugin transcended color. That Well, that's just a bunch of flavorful BS. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> this is an actual explanation. And I, I think it's still reasonable to question whether or not Ugin was just born as a colorless character. The flashback goes to what is very pointedly referred to as the God Emperor, which we've only seen Bolas referred to in the context of being God Emperor of Madara. He claims the realm and creates the giant horns and the gem of becoming that we see in the pools of becoming artwork. And I thought that was a, just a, a neat reference. It does kind of mess with the meditation realm wonkiness we talked about last time, which we don't really need to get into too much again today. But I think it was a very cool, very symbolic storyline parallel. Especially since before this, the meditation realm was kind of Ugin's thing. But after this, it's become Bolas's thing. So it's a very symbolic victory for Bolas that he finally, you know, believes he killed Ugin and has taken over Ugin's realm and... He thinks this is some great victory. So then we get something taken straight out of one of Rivals of Ixalan's story, when Azor and Ugin meet to discuss how to imprison Bolas, and that vision starts playing on repeat. Naiva and Baisha are pulled out of the vision by Yasova, because Bolas is basically outside threatening. And they come up with this plan to bluff Bolas. So Baisha goes out in Naiva's place. And their bluff is because of that vision playing on repeat, they finally got that Bolas is afraid of being trapped. And if you threaten that Ugin's plan could still go into effect to trap him, you could probably bluff him off the plane. Some people didn't like this one, but if you didn't like it, I hate to say it like this, but you probably haven't been paying attention to Bolas, who in his very first appearance post-mending in Shards of Alara ran away from Ajani's soul avatar that perfectly matched him. Bolas doesn't like taking risks. If he believes something will legitimately be a threat, he's not going to take a risk. Also, this is a very specific plan that is very specific to the story. People often talk about what characters would do in general terms, ignoring the specific nuances of those characters and the events that have shaped them. Because Bolas utters a very important line here in the most surprising use of parallels in this whole eight-episode arc, because I did not expect this to come up again. Yasova and Baisha pretending to be Naiva threaten Bolas and say, look, this immortal sun plane's still going down, and you're here, it's focused on you, and you're gonna get trapped. And he responds, I'm not stuck. 
the inverse of his first words, which were, I'm stuck. We're looking at both Bolas's arrogance as the story comes full circle, and he ragefully believes that he is in control of his own destiny. But it also ties back to his most primal fear, that he is trapped in that humans, those filthy lesser beings, are going to kill him, which is at the core, that fear of death, the fear of weakness, the fear of total lack of power over his own life. That's what's been driving Bolas this whole time. That has been the upshot of this story that has driven Bolas's quest for dominance so that no one could ever threaten him the same way that Moravia Saul was threatened by those humans on the Birth Mountain. Because this is the one thing to the core of Bolas's essence that he is truly afraid of. Because he cannot spare any moment on Tarkir, lest he be trapped forever. And this is attacking Bolas in effectively the faulty two-meter access port on the end of the Death Star that goes right to the core and nukes his anger and fear to kingdom come. The perfect bluff to stop Bolas and preserve Tarkir and preserve Ugin's healing essence. And it's just so great so great that Kate has tied the very humble beginnings of these two dragons into the very last moment where they're technically side by side at the end of the story. There was another great line in there that was a reference to Cruel Ultimatum. There will always be a greater power than the one you wield. I thought that was really great that it was thrown at Bolas in this instance. In the end, the bluff works. Bolas leaves, believing that Ugin had planned a final trap in case he came back, because Yasova and Baisha sold it so well. In the end, Taijin ends up staying with them to share some of the Jeskai lore with these Teemer. I'm going to call them that, because they are trying to preserve that lore. And it also really nicely sets up a future return to Tarkir that was hinted at in the first Tarkir block, but is explicit now that there are people keeping the clan's way alive. Let's talk about the story. The timeline is left open. It works around some other known mytho-history events. The duel with Ugin takes place sometime around the demonic leviathan duel with Bolas 20,000 years ago. We know those are two separate events because the Talon Gates still exist, and something had to die there. And by around the same time, we mean there are a couple thousand years window that both events probably took place during. So it's not like one happened right after the other. They probably happened very far apart in terms of the pace that actual life happens well, in the multiverse. stay tuned for story 9 of 8 next week, where it shows Bolas being flung out of the meditation realm onto the Madara beach, but while he's getting flung across the ocean, he accidentally slaps a claw in the water and it hits a Devonic Leviathan planeswalker. <laughs> That's what starts the fight, actually. He just accidentally landed on him. The Demonic Leviathan we hear about from Lashrak, and Lashrak says it was 20,000 years ago. Now, when someone's talking about a figure that large, they could mean anything within the span of like 5,000 years, reasonably. If it was 18,000 years ago, that doesn't sound as cool as, you know, they round up when they're telling these stories. So it could be centuries or millennia off, like Andrew said. That duel has to take place before the Guild Pact. Because sometime before the Guild Pact, Planeswalkers stopped showing up on the plane, which is actually what allowed the Guild Pact's creation, because the Planeswalkers who were kind of pushing this war on Ravnica disappeared about 10,000 years ago. It also takes place before the Lithomancer, because by then, he was the Spirit Dragon, and that was about 6,000 years ago. So his resurrection would have been before that point. We did mention there is the meditation realm weirdness where Bolas now not only knows about the meditation realm before the events of Legends 2, but has claimed it for his own 
before his death there and has installed the the nice big horns and everything. So that doesn't jive with Legends 2, but it's easy to imagine a headcanon where events very, very similar to, but not exactly like the ending of Champion's Trial, are able to happen in the Meditation Realm and Bolas is killed. Here's a question, and I think, Andrew, you actually posed this question originally. Does Narset know about Bolas and the Immortal Sun plot because it was recorded by these lore seekers in the end of the story? The Temur Caverns, Narset knows about them and intends to visit them in the original Tarkir block. That's a really good question. At this point, I think she probably does. Guess what's also going to be happening on Ravnica? Bolas has the immortal son, Ajani's looking for allies, Ajani knows Narset through Tamio. She could potentially know about the immortal son, how it was going to be used to trap Bolas, what Ugin and Bolas's relationship was, and might be showing up on Ravnica. Not that we have any actual concrete hints, but it's fun to think about. And this could be deliberate seeding for the upcoming block, which would be, I think, the most sideways way to kind of get Narset in there. It seems unlikely for that reason, but at the same time, I'm up for anything at this point. Yeah, and we should note Narset as part of the story circle was kind of just an offhand mention, but it would be very, very cool if that came back around like that. But there are a lot of paths to Ugin and Sarkhan and Narset through people's connections that would be reasonable for bringing them into the Ravnica plot. I'm like two pages left on the Art of Magic, the Gathering Dominaria, but wanted to say um, it's not much more info than Jace already has, but I think the valuable part of it, because Jace knows about the Immortal Sun and seemingly knows more about the plot than Narset would, but knowing Ugin and Bolas's relationship and also knowing what upsets Bolas enough to possibly distract him for a moment would still be valuable to have. They need any kind of edge they can get in this fight against him. Also, Narset's probably smarter than Jace, so that's <laughs> nice. Final question. Ugin taught ghost fire to the Jeskai and the Whisper Mind to the Temur. What did he teach to the Abzan, Sultai, and Mardu? I looked this up. I went back to the Planeswalker's Guide to Khans Tarkir to figure out what their signature magics were and which ones Ugin might have taught them. So they all learned morph eventually, but that's, I don't think, the individual skills he taught. So the one that's very clear in the Abzan is their spirit speaking meaning their ability to communicate with their ancestors in the first place. Mardu, they have the ability to conjure the wind and manipulate the wind of their planes. And I think that sounds very much like an Ugin thing to have taught them. And importantly, something that the Kologon probably don't want them doing. Because that's the other half of this, is that these are the skills that the Dragon Lords have banished. Ojutai doesn't want the monks to learn ghost fire. Atarka doesn't want whisperers in her clan. Dramoka killed Dagatar because he wouldn't give up his dedication to his ancestors. And if I was Kologon and wanted to go on lightning-streaked murder rampages, then I probably wouldn't want the people riding under me to screw around with the wind. Dagatar actually destroyed his connection. He's the one who, who gave in to Dramoka. Ah, uh, poop, it's the other one. What's her face? Anafenza. <laughs> yeah, she got a card in C16. Rehan. Rehan, yes. Anafenza did it later, but Rehan is the one who... Yeah, I knew one of them did. <laughs> and to be fair, if I was Ojitai, I wouldn't want my underling mages and followers learning such an expensive spell like that's two generic mana one red mana for three damage and you can just get that on pretty much any other spell for for just one red. teach them lightning bolt exactly or something. teach them lightning bolt teach them the weird one that sacrifices a land and rift bolt and all those other ones so the hard one was the sultai but looking through it i realized they had been dominated by the rakshasa the Sultai, their human magic that kind of got overwhelmed by the demons in the clan, 
was magic of strength, growth, and healing, which very much sounds like something Ugin might have taught them. That also sounds like the magic that the Naga use a lot in the Khan's timeline as well, which we know they probably don't use in the Dragon's timeline because Sidisi is a zombie now, which, <laughs> you know, good luck using healing magic when you're already undead. <laughs> okay, so let's go to final thoughts. My last thought, Carrie, is this has been wonderful doing this cast with you. I'm sad you are leaving the community, but I absolutely understand why. And it has been great collaborating with you for the last two plus years now. And also, Dredion Kaladesh, when? That was my biggest contribution to any kind of story thing was getting a scan of that Dredion Kaladesh. But no, I've enjoyed it. I will be keeping an eye from a distance for Raven Man to just see what that is, if we are right, if our hard work paid off. The Raven Man reveal happens, and we were right that it was Limdul. Carrie, you are absolutely invited to the braggy I told you so party. We're going to have an hour of just us saying I told you so. I don't know how many people there were, like, disagreeing with us, though. Like, I honestly don't recall anything that kind of rivaled the theory in either depth or kind of relation to Liliana. There are a lot of people who don't believe it or think it's something much simpler. There are a much smaller number of people who think it's something weird, like Urza. It's not Urza. It's not Urza. But yeah. It's not Merit Lage. Andrew, last thoughts. I guess this is this is it. This is the end, Carrie, right? Like... This is the last episode that I can really, in a timely manner, praise Kate Elliott's writing for the story. <laughs> when it was announced that the corsets were coming back and that they might have some kind of Vorthos importance to them, that was mind-blowing, because Origins was so great, and I think really set the bar high. And while Corset 2019 had some cool Vorthos things in the card set, I think including the... DFC for Nicol Bolas was awesome. Printing the other four Elder Dragons with him was awesome. Having the five Planeswalkers in the set all be connected to Bolas' story, and each of them getting a signature spell at rare, that was cool. We got to see some cool looks into other recent planes. But what I did not expect was for a core set to come along with an eight-part story. And an eight-part story that really did a lot of important storytelling for the Vorthos community. We have Nicol Bolas and Ugin's origins. We established their relationship, established how they are rivals. We have actual primary sources for the Elder Dragon War for the first time in 24 years. We've got all these great hints on Tarkir for the future. We got a great relationship with some old and new characters on Tarkir. We got to revisit so many cool kinds of stories about pre-mending planeswalkers and the pettiness and the aloofness and the arrogance that they can develop. This was just one of the best pieces of magic fiction I have ever read. And I am just very excited for the kinds of things that can happen in the future if this is the way things are going to go under this new regime. The fact that they've already said that they are absolutely open to bringing writers back again. Boy, if things work out, I would love, love, love to see Kate take another swing at some other story in some other corner of the multiverse. Maybe even write another Bola story. I don't know. But it was just fantastic. What's also fantastic is all the people out there who support us on Patreon. Because this show can't happen without your generous donations to keep this show running, keep the Vorthos goodness flowing, to keep the fun on the Vorthos cast Discord happening. It's been a blast so far. We're a couple weeks into this whole Patreon excursion, and we would love for more listeners out there to join us with that. So if you love the Vorthos cast and you want to hear more episodes of the Vorthos cast in the future, Consider visiting patreon.com slash thevorthoscast. Support the show. Thank you to the people who do, to the people who will in the future, to everyone who just listens because you love us. 
because we love you too. And speaking of love, Carrie. Well, I love being done with magic. I have just finished Heart of Magic the Gathering Dominaria, and I have completed a 100% run of all magic story. And I'm just going to put it on the shelf. And well, be careful, those target shelves aren't too stable. I mean, it's going to stay up. Well, Don't say that, we're going to lose our target sponsorship. <laughs> and it is placed on there. Oh, oh no. Oh! Carrie? 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 You okay, buddy? Carrie! This has been the Vorthos cast. <laughs>